A couple of years ago, I went on a trip with my daughter. We went on a college visit down to Texas, and while we were there, we made a stop at the Magnolia Silos. Now, many of you will recognize that place. Some of you have even been there, but in case you don't know, Magnolia is the place owned by Chip and Joanna Gaines, this couple who became famous for flipping homes on the TV show Fixer Upper. And while we were in town in Waco, Texas, we decided to eat at the Magnolia Table. It's a quaint little breakfast cafe owned by Chip and Joanna, and like everything about them, it's wildly popular. So that meant that our wait time at the cafe was quite long. I think they told us two hours initially, although we didn't wait quite that long. So, a story about waiting, it already ties into our current sermon series, The Waiting Game, right? We've been working our way through the book of First Thessalonians, and this book is all about waiting. One of the big topics that runs all through the book is waiting for the return of Christ, waiting for what's next for the church. And if you thought waiting two hours for biscuits and gravy was a long time, that certainly pales in comparison to the kind of waiting that the church has done. And it pales in comparison to the kind of waiting this church has done. We're waiting not only for Christ to return and set in motion his plan for what's next, but we're also waiting in the here and now, waiting to be able to gather again in person see each other face to face, and waiting to meet the man that God has next for us as a lead pastor. That's a lot of waiting. And it can be so easy to lose hope in a waiting time. But while I was at the Magnolia table, I got this coffee mug, and it has some hopeful words on it. It says, the good old days are still to come. That's a helpful slogan. It's true for this church, it's true for the universal church, the church all over the world. And that's because of the plan that God has revealed to us in his word, his plans for future events. It seems that God has his own fixer-upper in mind with the church and with the world he created. See, throughout the Bible, God reveals pieces of his plans for the future. And these pieces are scattered in different parts of the Bible. They're revealed in little snippets. And that makes them rather confusing. So, so a lot of churches, a lot of different types of churches, they end up understanding things just a bit differently, putting all the pieces together in a different way. Now, everyone agrees that certain events will happen, but it's not always clear the order in which they'll happen. And now there's an image, a helpful metaphor that some folks have used in order to describe part of the confusion, especially in the Old Testament, that the prophets, others, were, were revealing part of God's plan. But in some cases, it was as if they're, they're looking out in the distance at a mountain. They can see something on top of the mountain, and so they described it. So throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's details that are shared about future events, those, those things on top of the mountain. But as we get into the New Testament, as we look at the person and the teaching of Jesus, and, and we'll look at today the teaching in Paul's writings, like 1 Thessalonians, then we get a slightly different understanding. So if the prophets of the Old Testament were looking at the mountain from the front, when we have the New Testament, it's as if we're looking at the mountain from the side, and we realize, in fact, there's two mountains. So the things that the prophets describe, that they seem to all be happening on one mountain peak. In other words, things that, that they seem to be happening at one time in the future, they're in fact spaced out. There's other elements of God's timeline that are revealed. So this contracted view of events, it's part of the reason there's so many false expectations about Jesus' first coming. People know this Messiah would do this and that, and they assumed it would all happen at one time. They didn't understand that Jesus would come and then would come again a second time. 
So they're looking at the mountain from the front, seeing all the events contracted into one moment in time. They had a lot of expectations for the Messiah, and they couldn't understand why Jesus wasn't fulfilling all the things that had been prophesied about. So, thinking about future events, it can be confusing. But some of those elements are explained right here in 1 Thessalonians, where we've been studying. Some critical doctrines appear here that not only inform us as a church, but that inspire us as a church. They, they show up right here. They give us hope as we wait. So I want us to explore some of these topics this morning so we can understand a little more clearly about our own waiting. And since this topic can get very confusing very fast, we're going to take it slow today. We don't want anybody to be left behind. See what I did there? So I'm going to start by simply laying out a timeline of the major events. And hopefully you can see that timeline. i got to tell you, I'm really putting my artistic skills to the test here. But it begins with Jesus' ministry, his birth and ministry, followed by his death and resurrection. And the next major event you see there is Pentecost. This is a significant event because it's the coming of the Holy Spirit on believers, which brings about the, the church age. The church of Jesus' followers begins right there at Pentecost. So you and I are in what we call the church age. That's happening now. And the next event on the timeline is the rapture. That's something we'll talk about this morning. The rapture is the time when the church will be taken out of the world and united with Christ in heaven. And following the rapture, there's a season known as the Day of the Lord. We're going to talk about that a bit, too. It's not just one day. It's a, it's a season that includes a couple of events you've probably heard about, the tribulation and the millennium. So uh, there's a whole lot more we could say, but this gives us a basic timeline for future events. These are the things that the church is waiting for. When Paul went to Thessalonica, he taught the church about these things. Here at Trinity, we're awaiting these same things, the, the culmination of God's plan for us. This is the ultimate waiting game. And for us, for this church, we're waiting, like all churches everywhere, for Christ to return. But specifically, we need to understand what we're really waiting for. God has revealed to us what comes next. So as we continue our study of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see today two critical doctrines that help us wait with hope. So let's look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to start towards the end of chapter 4 in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will not certainly precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the first critical doctrine that we learn about here is the next item on our timeline, the event that comes next, the rapture. And the rapture refers to this doctrine of the church being taken out of the world by God. At some point in the future, Jesus will take the church out of the world to be with him. Paul instructs the Thessalonians about the rapture right here in chapter 4. But now, very briefly, before we get to the rapture, let's, let's put a pause on the future for a moment. 
there's something else right here in this passage that we need to address. It's this idea of soul sleep. See, Paul starts off this passage talking about those who are asleep. Now, when he says asleep, he means dead. That's why he talks about grief in verse 13, because he's talking about death. But now this little passage, this little sleep idea, it's created some confusion around this doctrine that people call soul sleep. That's a common belief in, in Seventh-day Adventism, some other groups. But I'm afraid it's not a belief that's supported by Scripture. It's just not. So if you don't know what soul sleep is, that's okay. It's a wrong doctrine. Don't worry about it. But I know some folks in our faith family have come out of STA backgrounds or have STA friends. And so I think it's worth talking for a moment about soul sleep. Some folks believe that soul sleep shows up right here in this passage, particularly in verse 14. Now, the, the Bible translation that I just read to you is the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Version. It's my preferred version. I think it's a very good scholarly translation. It's also easy to read. And in verse 14, the CSB says this, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So there you see this idea of being asleep. But some Bible translations, they seem to indicate in verse 14 that people have fallen asleep in Jesus. They arrange the, the different clauses of the verse in a different order. For example, the New King James reads this way. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So the SDA and others, they use this idea of falling asleep in Jesus to try to teach soul sleep. But it just doesn't match up with the rest of the Bible. It's not a doctrine that, be, can, that can be supported with the scriptures. Now, there's a whole lot more we can say about soul sleep, but let me just say, if you have questions, please let me know. I'd love to help you try to understand some more. So, on to the rapture. That's the focus of this passage. Paul lays out the things that will happen in order. Let's read part of the passage again. Verse 15, For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So verse 16, he indicates that the dead in Christ will rise first. And remember, the rapture is the moment when the church, believers in Jesus, will be taken up out of the earth, taken to be with Christ. So those who have already died, those who have died in Christ, that's the key, believers who have died, they're a part of the rapture. They'll be caught up to be with the Lord. They'll be made whole again, and their bodies made whole as they're caught up with Jesus. Now, a lot of folks wonder, if, if, the, if the dead in Christ, those believers who have passed away, if they're raptured, how can they be raptured, their bodies made whole, if they were buried hundreds of years ago, their bodies have decomposed, or if they were burned to death, or their ashes scattered at sea? Or more to the point, in this day and age, when traditional burial is so expensive, should we be concerned about cremating loved ones who are believers? These are genuine concerns. But I think we could put our fears to ease just a bit by looking at how Paul introduces this idea. Notice again, in verse 15, Paul explicitly says, We say this to you by a word from the Lord. So this teaching, it's authoritative. It comes from the Lord. And the God who made the universe out of nothing with just a word, he could certainly reassemble the decayed or burned or scattered bodies of all his saints in a moment. 
So that should give us comfort. Those of us who have buried a loved one, who have scattered the ashes of a loved one, God can safely shepherd all of the church into and through the rapture. So the dead in Christ, believers who have died, they'll be raptured first. And almost instantaneously, those believers who are still alive will be raised. Look again at verse 17. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So all of the church, past and present, will be caught up with the Lord. Those who have already died, any of those who are still alive at the time that Jesus returns for his church, every believer has this event to look forward to, the rapture. And that word caught up in Latin is rapturo. That's where we get the word rapture right from this verse, essentially. And we'll all be caught up to meet the Lord. That should be for us our ultimate joy, seeing the Lord face to face, and not just seeing him, but being welcomed by him. That should infuse us with hope, hope that no matter how bad things get for us in this life, we have something to look forward to. We are waiting with hope. And I want to share a couple other places where the scriptures give us hope related to the rapture. Uh, the first bit of hope, it comes from Jesus himself. As Jesus is sharing his last supper with his disciples, he tells them this. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus encourages them that even though he's leaving them, he'll return. And more than that, he'll return for them. He's coming back to take his disciples to be with him. And that should give them and us hope. Jesus and his disciples are facing the most terrible experience in their relationship. In just a few hours from this time, they're going to see him arrested executed and buried. And Jesus chooses to give them hope by teaching them about the rapture. He assures them from his own mouth and his own authority that he will return and that he will take them to be with him. So this doctrine of the rapture, this future event, it's not just some academic exercise, something to debate between church denominations. It's an incredible source of hope. Jesus cares about you and me enough that he's willing to leave his place in heaven come to earth and die for us. And he loves you and me enough that now, as he sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, he's willing to come back to the earth and gather his church to be there with him. And there's one more element of the rapture that gives us hope. And to see that, we're going to look at another place where Paul teaches the church about the rapture. This comes from 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul teaches the same ideas about the rapture here. The dead in Christ will be raised. They'll be made incorruptible, their bodies made whole, and then those who are still alive will also be raised. Paul says they'll be changed. Those who are still alive will be changed from their old, broken-down, earthly bodies to incorruptible bodies. We'll all be raptured. I saw a changing room one time, a nursery room that had, a, well, let's call it a, a creative interpretation of this passage. Right above the changing table and the diaper station, they had put this verse. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Well, we will not all die, but we will all be given incorruptible bodies as we go and meet the Lord. All the pain of aging, the pain of illness, all our sorrow, it will all disappear for us. And the best hope that Paul offers us here, though, it comes at the end. For Christians, those who have accepted Jesus, the rapture provides us with immense hope. Hope that Jesus loves us enough to come back for us, but also hope that death is not the end. Death does not get victory over us. Death has been swallowed up by God's promise that he will return for his church. Death has lost its sting for us because we know that even our loved ones who've gone ahead of us will be with the Lord. Death is not the end of the story for us. God is in the resurrection business, and he has a special plan for us, for his church. One Bible scholar says it so well. He says, many ills of life can be healed only by the Lord's return. We all have loved ones on the other side, and the many problems of this life, incurable disease, pain, sorrow, difficulties of all kinds, will all be made right. We can face the trials and challenges of life because God has given us this blessed hope of the Lord's return. May we take it to heart, live in its reality, and be refreshed by this truth. This hope can be certain for anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved us and died for us, who shed his blood so that we might be saved, and who rose in victory that we might have hope. As we shift back to 1 Thessalonians, we see that Paul gives us a very natural way to apply this truth to our lives. How do we live in light of the reality of the rapture? And to answer that, look back with me at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's the answer. We encourage one another. We've talked throughout this series how important our relationships with one another are. We've talked about the value of encouraging one another as we wait. And here is one very meaningful way we can encourage each other. We can remind each other that sadness, sickness, and sorrow do not get the last word. Forced quarantine does not get the last word. Even illness and death are no match for the victorious Lord Jesus. He will return for his church, and he will return soon. Remember, the rapture, it's the next event on the timeline. It could happen at any time. In fact, it could happen between the time that I record this sermon midweek and the time that you watch it on Sunday morning. It could happen any time. So we wait for that blessed event, and we wait for it with hope. Now, we've, we've learned or been reminded of a lot today. The rapture is a big topic. But 
There's another critical doctrine that 1 Thessalonians teaches us about, and we need to understand that carefully too. Remember, the rapture is just the, the beginning of the timeline I showed you. There's, there's more events to come. Let's look at the very next section, the beginning of chapter 5. It says this, About the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you don't need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So in this next section, Paul tells us about the day of the Lord. And that phrase, the, the day of the Lord, it's one that shows up all over the Old Testament. The, the prophets of old, they were looking out over that mountain. The events they saw were a lot of the events that make up the day of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets talk a lot about the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, is, it's an expression. It's not just one day. It's a, it's a season, a period of time that comes next on the timeline after the rapture. The church will be removed from the earth, and the day of the Lord will begin. It's essentially a season of judgment. God will judge the earth. And notice Paul says it will come just like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected. The rapture will happen unexpectedly, and then the day of the Lord will begin right after that. Now, before we talk about the day of the Lord, I just got to pause and address something I've heard a lot about recently Let's talk about this unexpected idea for a bit. This idea that the rapture and then the day of the Lord will be a surprise. Because I've heard some folks talking about the, the coronavirus as a sign of the end times. And people are referencing the words that Jesus says. He says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Jesus tells us nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. In other words, there'll be all these signs. So a lot of times, especially right now, people are looking at strange events like a global pandemic and wondering, is this a sign? Is this the end? That's why understanding this timeline is so helpful. Because then we know that whatever terrible stuff that happens, the church won't be a part of it. Jesus will return to claim his church first, and then the day of the Lord will occur, this time of judgment. That's important for us to remember. So... Back to the day of the Lord. Again, it's not just a day, it's a season. And the first part of the day of the Lord is, is a seven-year-long period known as the Tribulation. This is a period of time in which there will be terrible events, terrible judgments on the earth. Now remember, the church, those who have believed in Jesus, will have been raptured, will not be present during this Tribulation. So these terrible events are designed to bring people to repentance, to bring people to the place where they come to know and believe in Jesus. Here in Thessalonians, Paul goes on to encourage the church about this time. He says this in chapter 5. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark. For this day to surprise you like a thief? For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. 
Paul encourages the church that they'll be raptured before this time, even though it will come so unexpectedly for some, for those who are in the dark. You and I are not in the dark about this. God has revealed his plan to us so that we can be in the light, aware of his plans and of his will. So there'll be a seven-year period of judgment, and that's when the, the Antichrist will appear, these kinds of things. We don't have the time to go into all the details. Uh, but notice how Paul describes it in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So people will be lulled into thinking there's peace and security, but in reality, they're doomed for destruction apart from Christ. The whole tribulation period, this seven-year period after the rapture, is designed to lead people to follow Christ. It's a time of definitive judgment, when God will, will turn up the heat on the entire world. And even though the events of the tribulation are terrible, in a way, this part of the day of the Lord should also give us a sense of hope. See, the day of the Lord is a time of judgment. And since we live in a world, well, a world where, where evil seems to flourish, where evil people seem to get away with all kinds of things, we sometimes wonder if God's really even paying attention to all the bad things in the world. This gives us hope. God has told us in his word that a time is coming when no one will escape his judgment, a time when justice will reign supreme. That should give us hope. God has not overlooked injustice. God has not forgotten his people. Instead, God is merciful. He wants all people to come to know him. So I know I've thrown a lot of information at you, a lot of info about these critical doctrines. It's important for us to understand God's plan as he's revealed it to us. And there are still pieces that are unclear, but again, it's worth noting not everybody puts the pieces together in the order that our church does. So, you know, you go to visit your family at Thanksgiving, you bring up the end times and casual conversation over dinner, be prepared for some arguments. It's, it's going to get awkward. Not everybody believes the same things, okay? But in all of this, Paul shares it with the Thessalonian church for a purpose. And, and I share it with you, with our church today, for a purpose, for the same purpose. Paul lays out his purpose in the last few verses of this section. Look with me again at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, put on the armor of faith, and love, and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Paul's purpose and my purpose are the same, for the church to stay alert, to wait with hope. And in encouraging the church to wait with hope, to stay alert, Paul draws on this image of a soldier getting ready for battle. We put on armor of faith and love. Just like we've talked about already in this series, our faith, faith that God will finish the work that he started, it shows up as love, love for each other, love for our community. So we have faith that God is still at work in our church, still at work in our valley, still at work teaching us things and growing us. And the way we respond with that faith is by love. Love, first and foremost, for each other. The way we show love to each other, that's the loudest voice that our world hears. That's how we best prepare ourselves for what comes next. We stick together, we support each other, letting our faith and hope show up to the watching world as love. And listen to verse 9 again. For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul is saying very clearly that our appointment is to be caught up with Christ, raptured. The appointment of the world is for the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. You cannot keep both of these appointments. We make our appointment with, for salvation and for the rapture when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior from sin. So my encouragement to each and every one of us who's watching is you make sure that you truly put your trust in Christ. You have made a decision to follow him. God has been gracious and merciful to reveal what's coming next. So for those who put their trust in him, it's an appointment to be with him forever. And for those who have rejected him, there is a day of judgment coming. So if you're a person who's not made a decision to follow Jesus, please don't delay. You can reach out to me. I would love to help you do that. Help you understand what that means for you. So we wait with hope. Hope that God is not done with us. He has a plan for his church and for his whole world. And twice in this passage, Paul tells us to encourage one another. He tells us to build one another up. And he encourages us as we wait to be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Will you pray with me? God, we, we pray like uh, so many uh, of our brothers and sisters have for centuries now. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. We're ready to be with you. We know you're with us here now, but we're ready to be with you in a fresh way, face to face. Especially thinking about our current situation, the idea of seeing you face to face trumps all the other things that we're missing out on right now, Lord. And so we, we want to pray that you would uh, encourage us with the truth that you are coming back for us. And we want to pray, too, for the world that is uh, not already uh, lined up with you in that kind of a way, that hasn't been saved by the work that you've done. And we want to pray for those people that are closest to us, those people right in our own community that need to hear the truth of the gospel. And we know that that's part of the reason that you've left us here, so that we can be people who share that truth with others. So give us the courage to do that. Give us the hope that you are still at work and give us the ability to exercise our faith and love for others who need to know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.